Kim Silver is going to read our scripture this morning, uh, Galatians chapter 2, 11 through 14. Please stand in honor of God's word. Listen as I read. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? This is the word of the Lord. Uh, so we are uh, starting a, a new series today, and uh, the title of the series is The Gospel Changes Everything. And it's uh, going to be an eight-week series, and we're excited to, uh, to walk through that with you. Uh, if you were here last week, you know, last Sunday was, uh, was Easter, and um, in some ways, you know, that Sunday is no different than the other 51 Sundays of the year uh, in, in some very real ways. Uh, our objective every single Sunday <clears throat> is to gather and represent the gospel, to gather and to consider again the good news uh, about Jesus. And then in other ways, you know, Easter is special. Easter is a, a time where uh, our, our attention is, is honed in and it's uh, notable and the energy level is, is a little bit higher. And so hopefully you were able to be with us uh, last week. But uh, whether you were or whether you weren't, there, there's a phrase that I referenced uh, last week, and it's, a, uh, it's some language that Christians have used and repeated often throughout the years. And, and the phrase was, is, uh, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. So two past tense phrases, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and then one future tense phrase, uh, Christ will come again. Uh, three really powerful declarations. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. And last week, as I talked about those phrases, um, I, I just I briefly summarized them. And I, I said something along these lines. You know, th th this points to a Savior who died, who rose from the dead, and who is coming again. Uh, th these are like essential realities, essential components to the message of the gospel. And in some very real ways, they're terrifying. I referenced a video clip by the philosopher Jordan Peterson. And in this little video clip, Jordan Peterson, who has a very large following, New York Times bestseller, and sells out all kinds of things, he's had some confusion. If you are familiar with him, there's been some confusion onto exactly what he believes about God, what he believes about the Bible, what he believes about Christ. But in this recent video clip, uh, as he is uh, processing his interactions with Jesus about the person and work of Christ, he actually, in this video, it's, it's, it's an interview. It's, it's live. And he says, uh, I, I believe, but I, I can't actually believe I believe. I, I'm actually stunned at my own belief. And then he begins to cry. And he says it's almost too terrifying to consider what that means for my life. And the exact quote is, I don't even know what would happen to you if you fully believed it. And uh, you know that, that uh, Ben is the one who sent me that video clip. And when I, when I watched it, I just sat there stunned and just thought, this is evidence of a guy whose heart is being altered, who is, who is being changed 
by the significance and the severity of what this message of the gospel is actually saying about the world. I also quoted Esau McCauley last week, uh, who writes for the New York Times, and he was referencing the, the women showing up at the tomb on Easter morning and how the Gospels clearly indicate that they were so scared, that they were terrified. They did not go to that tomb expecting for it to be empty. And Esau McCauley says, the only thing more terrifying than a world with Jesus dead is one in which he is alive. Meaning that what, what does this say about this Christ that he can conquer death? What does it say about this Christ that he could actually take the sin of the world upon himself, be buried, beat death, and actually come and reign as a king? This is a, a terrifying consideration. The power of the gospel, the significance of the gospel. What if it's all true? I think Jordan Peterson's uh, comment is, is worth consideration. I don't even know what that would what you know what would happen to you if you fully believed it. Well, that's what we're trying to explore. Not just this Sunday, uh, but every Sunday, every time we we gather and every time we open the scriptures, we are trying to wrestle with the consideration of what does it mean for my life if I actually believe this? What does it mean for my life if Jesus actually makes dead hearts alive? What does it mean if this Jesus who conquered death is coming back to set up his kingdom? What does it mean for my life? Have we taken those realities for granted? All that power, all that significance, is this just an add-on in your life? Are you so familiar with the truth about the gospel that that kind of disruption doesn't even hit you? The idea that it would be that terrifying? The idea that the only thing scarier than a, a world in where Jesus is dead is a world in where Jesus is actually alive? What would happen to you if you fully believed it? Well, these eight weeks, uh, we're going to try to explore uh, that reality, the reality that gospel changes everything. Now, obviously, in eight weeks, we can't actually address everything, um, but we are going to address a number of areas uh, and see what the gospel has to say uh, about them, what, what the gospel, in a sense, what the gospel does. Um, and so the subjects are going to be guilt and money, sexuality, joy, uh, our witness, race and culture, a, a handful of, uh, of ideas. And again, we won't get to everything. Uh, but it will allow us to, to consider the gospel from various angles and how the gospel speaks into the everyday uh, world. Um, so today, what we're going to do, you heard the passage read from Galatians chapter 2. And in some ways today, I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to set the stage and uh, invite us into uh, this recognition uh, of seeing the world from the perspective of what does the gospel have to say about that. So in Galatians chapter 2, we have a gospel problem. In Galatians chapter 2, you heard verses 11 through 14 read. And what Galatians 2 is, is, is talking about, it, it's, it's referencing this, this idea or this, this uh, event where Paul had gone to Jerusalem uh, to talk with the other apostles. And you can read about this in the book of Acts. Uh, and there was uh, uh, this discussion that he had with the other, with the other apostles, and it was, it was trying to navigate the reality of what is this news about Jesus? What is this gospel uh, message? What is it at the essence? Uh, there was beginning to be some confusion about how does the gospel speak into those who were Jews, and what does the gospel have to say for people who aren't Jews? Right? Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. Jesus is, it, Jesus is the one that the Jews were waiting for. But now there's this movement in the Gentile communities, and there began to be some confusion. What, what, what is this gospel message really about? What is it as, at its essence? 
And so as, as they gather, uh, Galatians 2 is uh, verses 1 through 10. Uh, Paul says, you know, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with uh, Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. So it's this gathering in Jerusalem, and it's the gathering of a lot of significant voices. And as they gathered, there was an agreement that Christ alone, Christ and nothing else, is enough to cleanse you. Christ and Christ alone is enough to make you acceptable in God's sight, to make you beautiful in his sight, to clothe you in righteousness. See, they were clarifying which is the cause and which is the effect. What what they were wrestling with is, what is it that actually makes you right? Is it the fact that you believe or is it the fact that you obey? Which one is the cause and which one is the effect? Is obedience the cause and then salvation is the effect? Or is salvation the cause and then obedience is the effect? Paul is saying, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and at that moment you're saved. You are saved by faith, by faith alone, by grace alone. In that moment you are saved. And then immediately you are going to proceed to keep the law of God. God has has awakened your heart. He's given you new eyes to see the world. And you're actually going to align yourself with his good way. And you're going to trust in him and walk in obedience. But the teachers that we run into here in Galatians chapter 2, the teachers that caused these uh, meetings to happen in Jerusalem, these teachers are saying, believe on Jesus, keep the law of God the best you can, and then you'll be saved. So, in other words, Paul says, believe, you're saved, then you obey. The teachers are saying, believe and obey, and then you'll be saved. What's interesting about this this, uh, little sequence of events is that the indications are that the idea of believing in Jesus, that's not debated. This centrality of Jesus or this, this recognition of Jesus being an essential component, that's not being debated. They believed that Jesus was the Son of God. They believed he was the Messiah. They believed he came down from heaven. They believed he rose from the dead. They believed he died on the cross for our sins. Those things were all agreed upon. What seems to be the point of confusion is, what's the order? What's the cause and what's the effect? See, the problem is the difference between the order of these steps is not small. It's not small at all. They're actually teaching two very different ways of relating to God, two dramatically different ways. Uh, If you were uh, part of a community group this past fall, as we were juggling and and trying to respond to all the uh, ongoing friction of COVID-19 and the restrictions that existed for group size and being able to gather in people's houses, Uh, You know, our church pitched an idea uh, to all of our groups of walking through the same curriculum uh, together, and we tried to offer some creative solutions to to try to navigate that that series together, but it was called Gospel in Life. And if you uh, got the opportunity to work through that curriculum, it was a a really uh, really special time for uh, for our group, Um, and it's written by a, a guy named Tim Keller. And maybe you're familiar that early on in that series... Uh, Tim is is wrestling with this reality that we often think in these categories of irreligion or religion, kind of irreligion throwing off God 
or religion trying to obey God. And what Tim Keller goes on to point to is that there's not two ways of relating to God. There's not just throwing God off and doing your own thing. There's not just trying to obey God and, and, do, and do what he says. There's a third way. And the third way is actually the gospel. And so you have irreligion. Irreligion is a way of relating to God in which you say, I don't care about what God says. Or you conclude that God doesn't care what you do. And so it leads to this, this life of license. It leads to a life of relativism where you become your own master. You, you decide what you do and what you don't do. You, in a sense, have dethroned God. You've, you've pushed God off to the side. Maybe you don't believe God exists. Maybe you don't care what God has to say. Maybe you think that God doesn't care what you do. Whatever the case, this would be a category of, of irreligion where you're looking at your situation and saying, I'm, I'm free to make my own choices here. I'm not... I'm not restricted. Um, irreligion is a lie, but it is one of the ways of, of relating to God. That's not actually being addressed here in Galatians chapter 2. The other two are. This, this second way of, of relating to God would be this category of religion. And, and religion is this perspective in which it's like, I there's this God in heaven. He's, he's you know, powerful and glorious, and he has this, 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 uh, you know, th th this way of, of uh, trying to interact with the world by sending Jesus to, to earth to, to, to rescue and to, and, to, and to provide for us and, and to all, do all of, all of these various things. My responsibility is to, to work really, really hard at obeying him, to find out what is the life that I'm supposed to lead, what are the things that I'm supposed to do, and then you go and you go do them. And in by doing them, you make God pleased with you. By obeying all of the rules, honoring God, reading the Bible, studying all of his do's and don'ts, and by doing all of those things, you make God happy with you. Now, religion is also a lie. Religion has an idea that says, I obey. If you remember this language from the study, I obey, therefore, I am accepted. If I obey God then I'll be accepted. Well, the third way of relating to God is what we could just call the gospel way. And the gospel way comes alongside these other options and says they're both wrong. Throwing off God and being your own master, that does not work. But neither can you obey your way there. Neither can you do enough good deeds or you know, put enough uh, good works together to make God happy with you. You can't justify yourself. In the end, these, these uh, ways of religion and irreligion are actually two different ways of trying to save yourself. Irreligion says, says I don't care what God says. I'll do, my own, I'll do my own thing. I'll save myself. But religion is basically saying to God, God, you give me the to-do list, and then I'll do it. See, I'll save myself. You tell me what to do, and I'll do it. The gospel is something completely other. The gospel is actually saying that Jesus Christ does it for us. So where religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted, the gospel says, I'm accepted. I'm accepted because of Christ, therefore I obey. And so the order that is being wrestled with here, that this, this, uh, the contrast between, is it believe, you're saved, and then you obey? Or is it believe and obey, and then you'll be saved? This, this is not just an argument or a debate that happened 2,000 years ago in this little uh, area of Galatia. 
This, this is a, a wrestling that's been going on for a long, long time. It still rages, not just in our communities, not just in our culture, but in our own hearts. This is something that you might have to address or might need to see in your own life multiple times a day. You see, think about the options. Is Jesus Christ your Savior? Or is Jesus Christ your example and your teacher? Does Jesus Christ actually save you? Or is Jesus Christ part of a package through which you save yourself? See, a lot of people who believe in God and Jesus actually believe in what these teachers were saying instead of what Paul's saying. This idea, and I don't want to get off into all of it, but just this idea that there were certain external things that you needed to do in order to actually be right with God. A lot of us wrestle with this truth, whether we recognize it or not. Which do you believe? Not what do you assume you believe, but what do you functionally believe? What do you rest in? Do you rest in the reality that Jesus saves you in spite of you? Or do you rest in the stuff you've done? The reputation you have? All the good works that you have achieved? You see, this meeting that happened in Jerusalem that's being referenced in the first part of Acts, or, uh, Galatians 2, uh, all the, apostles, the indications are that all the apostles agree that the gospel is believe, you're saved, and then obedience is the outgrowth. All, that's the conclusion. We agree that the external actions are not what save you. There are no external actions that can save you. Jesus saves you. Now, you would think, especially back then, if all the apostles agreed, if all these big names agreed, that would have put it to bed. I mean, all these leaders we get from the book of Acts that Peter and Paul and James and John, the apostles, they're all there. Paul was there. Barnabas was there. Brought, brought Titus with them. Like all of these names, all of these individuals, you would think it would be, well, if those guys all agree, who could disagree with this? But these teachers, they didn't change their mind. They've come to Galatia and they're teaching the very same thing. They don't stop. Now, Cephas is referred to here in, in our passage, and some of you know this, but Cephas is just another name for, for Peter. And Peter has been ministering in this area. And Peter comes to visit a church in Antioch, and this church in Antioch, it is full of Gentiles, non-Jewish people who have become Christians. And Peter shows up there, and he's, he's spending time with these Gentiles, and he's, he's eating with them and, and serving them and teaching them and ministering with them. But it tells us that certain men from James, is what it says, certain men from James showed up and they had this different message. They had a message that it's not just what you believe, it's what you do. Have, have they, do they have the external marks? Do they have the right resume? Should you really be with them, Peter? Now, as a side note, James didn't believe what these people are trying to say James believed, but they presented themselves that way. They came to Peter and they're like, hey, we're from James's church. And yeah, James was a half-brother of Jesus. So like, you should really listen to what, what we have to say. These false teachers were appalled at what Peter was doing. 
that Peter was spending time with these Gentiles who didn't have the resume. These Gentiles who had not gone through these external uh, actions that these teachers said were necessary for you to be right with God. Well, these teachers presented to Peter, and in verse 12, these certain men from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, what what did Peter do? Peter drew back, and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, fearing these religious Jews, these Jews who came, and they were not denying that Jesus was the Son of God. They were not denying that Jesus died for their sins. But what they were saying is, Jesus, plus these actions, that's how you're right with God. And when they make that pitch to Peter, what does Peter do? Peter bails on the Gentiles. He draws back and he goes with the circumcision party. He goes with this group of teachers. Well, Paul, as he's explaining this to us in the verse before, Paul says, because of that, I opposed them. And I opposed them to his face. Paul is straightforward, just point blank. He calls Peter a hypocrite. Look look, look at verse 13. He says, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Paul's like, you guys know Barnabas? Barnabas is such a good guy. He got swept up in this. They're acting as hypocrites. They're saying that they agreed that it's believe, saved, obey, but they weren't living that way. Can you relate to that? In our current cultural setting, there are a lot of people who believe in God and believe in Jesus Christ, but they are relating to God in terms of what Paul here would call justification by works. What we could call shorthand, they're relating to God through religion, through observing the law, believe, obey, saved. What sometimes is called works righteousness. How do you relate to God? When you put your head on the pillow at the end of the day, how do, you, how do you view your relationship with God? Is it rooted in the fact that Jesus has saved you in spite of you? That by giving up your self-salvation project and trusting Jesus to save you, that just because of that, God is pleased with you, that God smiles upon you, that God welcomes you in? Or at the end of the day, do you wonder, did I do enough good things today? If I died tonight, would I, where would I be? Have I done enough good things for God to be happy with me? Well, Paul says that is a misunderstanding of one's relationship to God. That is a misunderstanding of the gospel, and Paul calls it out. So we have a gospel problem, and here's, here's what I want us to see. Gospel growth. What does Paul say, in a sense, is the solution to this? See, if you think, ah, yeah, man, I I get this. I'm one of the right ones. I'm not like Peter. You know, Peter's always so impulsive. Like, I'm not, thank good, you know, thank God I'm not like him. I understand the difference here. I get the gospel. How many of us have said that? I get the gospel. Listen, if that's where you're at, then watch out. Because you may be applying it in certain areas of your life, but you may be blind to it in other areas of your life at the very same time. You know, some of the sermons that Peter preached, some of the ways that God used Peter throughout his life and ministry, incredible. 
absolutely incredible. And yet here, he is swept away, living as a hypocrite, living as one who says that it's faith in Christ that saves you. But then the second he gets in a situation where there's some pressure, he bails on that. We might be more like Peter than we want to admit. See, this passage isn't really telling us what the gospel is as much as it's showing us how it operates. And one of the takeaways is that, this, that you know, the gospel is a lifelong journey of letting the gospel reveal various parts of our heart. It's a lifelong journey of letting the gospel reform us and mold us into the image of Jesus. There's a reason why the Bible says it's little by little or degree by degree we're transformed into the image of Jesus. You've got growing to do, and so do I. So here's what Paul is suggesting. Paul is suggesting that the gospel provides what one might call directional momentum. That the gospel, it rescues us from sin and death, but it also informs the way we live. The gospel brings justification, absolutely. Justification is being declared right, but that same gospel also brings sanctification. Sanctification is this progressive movement towards Christ, this progressive movement of becoming more and more holy. And the same gospel that justifies you also is at work sanctifying you. And if you miss gospel sanctification, then you, look, you're going to be a hypocrite. We're going to continue to create hypocrites. We're going to be Pharisees. Unless we realize that this message of the gospel is not only the message that brings us to life, but it's also the message that wants to form us and mold us. See, we often fight sin wrong. Maybe you can relate to this. Uh, at, you know, our focus, as, I mean, I, I function as a pastor. Uh, I've done this as a pastor. I function as a parent. I've done this as a parent. And I function, I function in my own life, with, uh, preaching and talking to myself. I've done this in my own heart, in my own life. But I often fight sin in regards to behavioral modification. I, I want to fight sin by just stopping that action. I just don't want to do that action anymore. But do you notice that when Jesus talks about sin, he seems far less concerned with conformity to rules or even morality and far more concerned about the condition of your heart. You know, the gospel produces our salvation, and then the gospel produces our obedience. See, G Jesus takes it so much farther than the rules. He goes all the way to the heart. Maybe you're familiar with the, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus goes through all these sequences, where he says, you've heard it said, and then he references some, in a sense, some rule. But then he goes so much deeper than that. He digs around in the heart. He digs around in the layers underneath the action. And Jesus wants us to recognize that what he is most after is not what you do with your hands, not first and foremost. He's after what you do with your heart. And Paul here is just following Jesus' lead. He fights Peter's sin by going after Peter's heart. Not external mor morality, he recognizes that there's something deeper. What, what Peter's doing here, some, some would identify as racist. He, he is taking a, a group of ethnic people and saying, I won't spend time with them anymore. And you could say, well, yeah, yes, there is some, some racial activity going on here. But do you see that Paul doesn't point to that? 
Paul goes deeper than the action. Paul goes deeper than Peter's racism. Here's what Paul points to. Paul sees that Peter wants something. Maybe you could say Paul sees that Peter needs something. And what Peter appears to need is the approval of others. The social acceptance of what he considered to be the in crowd. The the, the religious people showed up and said, you're doing this wrong. How dare you? And he immediately bailed on what was right in order to have their approval, in order to have their affirmation. Paul understands that exterior conformity to a moral standard, it is not enough. It's the heart that needs changing, not just for the unbeliever. Yes, absolutely an unbeliever's heart needs to change, but a believer's heart needs to change too. Do you recognize that this is a lifelong journey of your heart changing? Can can you look in the rearview mirror and within recent years, recent months, can you see areas where your heart's changing? You know, Christianity is a journey of self-critique. There should be many things that I am aware of in my life and that you're aware of in your life that need changing. Peter is an apostle. Peter is a follower of Jesus. Peter is a son of God. And yet in this instance, Peter is not letting the gospel drop below just his actions, just the external realities of his life. And Paul is calling him to something better. In a sense, Paul confronts racism, but he does it with the gospel. It's not just a moral beatdown to, quote-unquote, do better. If we're going to get after real change, we have to go after the heart. You know, the Pharisees. Pharisees were so committed to the Scriptures. You know, a passage I reference a lot, at least it feels like I reference it a lot, is in John chapter 5, when Jesus is in one of his arguments with the Pharisees. And uh, he says to the Pharisees, you know what, guys? You study the Bible like crazy. I admit that. Like, you study the Scriptures. You know them backwards and forwards. But you refuse to turn to me. So he's saying, it's not a problem of you knowing what the Scriptures say. You know what the Scriptures say. But your heart... Another time when he's talking to the Pharisees, he says, is all you guys do is heap heavy stones on other people. You just keep adding more and more rules. You keep adding more and more external expectations. You keep just adding to the list. And you're, you're, you're burdening people down because it's all behavioral modification. You're not actually getting to the heart. Paul knows there are deeper idols producing uh, that, uh, that, are, that are at work in Peter. And guess what? There are deeper idols producing your sin as well. Uh, what some theologians, they, they call this functional saviors. We might see the approval of others here in Galatians chapter 2, but let me use another example, a simple one. Lying. Why do you lie? I mean, you could say, I lie because I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. Yeah, that, that's true. But you don't lie about everything. Like, if you went back through this past week, you didn't lie about everything. But there were some things you lied about. Why did you lie about those things? See, you have a deeper problem than lying. You, you and I have idols of the heart. We lie because in that moment, 
we want something more than we want Christ. And so we lie about what we lie about because we think if we tell the truth, then this other thing will be threatened. And so instead of obeying God and honoring God and, and, and telling the truth and letting yourself come clean and draw in, let, let, let the light shine, instead, we hide behind the lie because there's something that is threatened. Our reputation, our security, our position of power. See, we say with our head that we believe the gospel, but deep down in our hearts, we often realize that we have a different savior, a different functional savior. See, the, the ways of combating lying, here, 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 and this is what I was talking about as a pastor, as a parent in my own life, I could look at myself and realize I lie and say, bad Christian, bad Christian, you, you know better than that. What would people think if they found out you were lying? Have you done that to yourself? You done that to your kids? What would people think if they found out you were lying. Now look, that, that, that might work. That might work. It might get them to stop lying. It might get you to stop lying. But you know what it also does? It actually strengthens the idol of human approval. Because what you're saying is, oh man, I wouldn't want that person to know that I'm a liar because then they would think less of me. You see? Your motivation to not lie is feeding this other idol. And that's what's happening to Peter here in Galatians chapter 2. He is in need of the approval of, these, of the circumcision crowd. He, it's produced this racist attitude. He won't eat with non-Jews. Peter's deepest problem is not racism, though that, 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 that is wicked. His deepest problem is the false savior, the false idol of human approval, of social acceptance. How do you know if something is an idol? Well, the way you know it's an idol is you will sin to get it or you will sin to protect it. You see what Peter's doing? Peter's saying, I have to have it and I'm willing to do something wrong to keep it or to get it. Paul could have addressed Peter's racism with pressure on his will. A simple you know, exhortation, be a better Christian, Peter. He could have said to him, what would the apostles say if they knew you did this? But again, that would have just strengthened the false savior of human approval. Well, the option, what is the option? The option is to turn to a far better savior and to find your motivation there. Jesus, the only true savior. And that is exactly what Paul does. Paul points to Christ and Jesus' gospel. In verse 14, he says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, when I saw that their conduct wasn't in line with the gospel. Do you see? He doesn't say their conduct broke the moral rule. Their conduct broke their, you know, our communal standards. No, he says it's not in line with the gospel. The gospel has a trajectory. The gospel has a momentum. The gospel has direction. And when Paul looks at Peter's life and these other people, he says it's not in line with the gospel. That the gospel lays out a way in which you live your life. It gives you a momentum or a trajectory. Now, the aim of this series is to flesh this out in the weeks to come. To basically say, what does it look like to walk in line with the gospel in regard to guilt? Or in regard to sexuality? Or all of these other subjects? But let me just show you here. 
in, in, in response to Galatians 2, in regard to Peter's situation, how does the gospel speak to this? Well, Peter apparently cannot imagine facing the rejection of these religious leaders. He's intimidated by them. He bends to them. He obeys them. He needs their approval. Well, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus' life. Jesus gave up all of his approval. Jesus was shunned by mankind. You might say, no, he had huge crowds. Read John 6. As Jesus' teaching gets more and more specific, the crowds take off. The crowds leave Jesus. Jesus is shunned by mankind, and he is definitely shunned by the Jewish religious leaders. But it gets worse. During the week of his crucifixion, all of the disciples disappear. And then on the cross, on the cross, he's even shunned by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did Jesus do all that? Why did Jesus go through all of that? So that we could be welcomed in. So that we could be welcomed in as sons and daughters who are loved by God. You see, Jesus lost his approval so that we could receive the approval of the only one who ultimately matters. Can you imagine being free from the idol of the approval of other people? I recently made a, a, the, the really bad decision of getting back on Twitter. And, uh, and I've actually, over this week, maybe it's because it's on my radar with this sermon, but over this week, I have seen multiple people make comments that have to do with, you want to you know what true joy is? Like, stop caring about what other people say. Some version of that comment is showing up on Twitter all the time. And yet, you can say that, but oh, easier said than done, isn't it? Well, the gospel offers us this guarantee, this promise, this assurance that because Jesus was rejected, we can actually be welcomed in. We can actually, in Christ, have the approval of the Trinity. We're actually in the ultimate in crowd, been welcomed in to perfect relationship with God, accepted by God, smiled upon by God. That then allows us to turn to our world and with incredible amounts of confidence in the fact that we've already been accepted, that we've already been approved, we can actually love people for their sake. It allows us to, to be able to say hard things, to say them with grace, but to say hard things and not be afraid of, just, of, of their rejection. We live in a culture right now where, boy, cancel culture and all, all kinds of dynamics are at play that make it really, really hard to tell the truth to share with people things that they desperately need to hear. Well, Jesus offers us freedom from the approval of people because he provides the approval that our souls most desperately need. You know, Paul is saying to Peter, don't you see? Jesus did not just save you from sin in general. Jesus also saved you from being enslaved to the opinion of other people. Paul's pleading with Peter to see the gospel more clearly, to let the gospel soak in, to let it heal his need for approval, to let it change him from the inside out. And that's what we long to do over these weeks together, is to let that gospel, little by little, change us from the inside out. 
Jesus wants to get to your heart, not just behavioral modification. May you do it. Let's pray. God, thanks for this text, and we thank you for the the courage of Paul, uh, the willingness of of Paul to confront uh, a fellow laborer, a fellow apostle, to, to bring to his attention something so significant and yet so sensitive. God, as we're here today, I, I certainly do not uh, think that I could uh, sort out all the idols stirring around in my heart. But would you begin to give me eyes to see them? God, would you, would you do that work in, in each of us? Would you, would you help us to see what is it that I'm actually trusting in? What is it where, my, where, where is it that I actually put my hope? God, would you help us to, to, to see that and to turn from it, to come to Christ who has rescued us in the only way that matters. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.